Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant which I am praying before thee now, day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against thee, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people, whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, May thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. It came about in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. For the next four evenings, I shall be speaking to you from the book of Nehemiah, seeing him as an Apostle of Restoration and taking as an overall title for these four nights Let Us Arise and Build. 
Surely there's no passage in the Bible that's more appropriate to these days of restoration in which we live. We are here to testify that God is about a work of restoration. He is restoring his church. And there is so much for us to learn in the book of Nehemiah that is so very appropriate for us today that if we are really taught by the Holy Spirit, we should be a people who are fortified and strengthened for the work that is ahead of us. In this passage, I want us just to, first of all, be reminded of the historical background so that we can fit it in. Sometimes we have difficulty seeing the thrust of a passage of Scripture for want of background information. I want to remind you that in God's economy in the Old Testament, the land represented the blessing of God. God spoke to Abraham centuries before this time, promising him that he would take his descendants into the land of promise. It would be a land they could possess, a land of blessing, a land which spoke of the fact that God was for them, was providing for them, they would be a special people to him, and their being in the land would be a mark of that special blessing. We find how that was repeated when Moses triumphantly crossed the Red Sea. He sang the song of deliverance, he sang the song of triumph, and wrapped up, even in that song as they came out of the Red Sea, was the awareness that God was taking them on into his sanctuary, into the hill where he would dwell, into Zion. So as they came out of Egypt, already there was that sense, it's not just an escape story. It's not just being saved from bondage. There is a going on into the blessing of God, which was represented by the land of Canaan. After Moses, we see Joshua triumphantly leading them in. At last, they're coming into their inheritance, having been trained up as that army of God. And then under David, land which hitherto had only just been taken hold of here and there, is taken over in great authority. David as a type of our Lord Jesus with triumphant battles, takes the land and hands it on to Solomon. And under Solomon there is the fullest demonstration of the kingdom of God on earth in material terms. There they are in the land, the land of promise. God's blessing is with them. They're in Jerusalem itself. They took that by special warfare. And now the temple has been built. The glory has fallen. And there is the fulfilment of God's promise of generations before. Having arrived at that place though, we find there is a declension, there's a spiritual slipping away. They begin to forget the laws of God. They begin to forget the promises and, and, and they uh, are already slipping away by one generation after Solomon until God has to send warnings. He sends prophets to them and says, now look, you must walk in obedience to me or I'll take you out of the land. And there's warning after warning after warning until in the end, God with his heart, it seems in agony, says I will have to remove you from the land. The land which speaks of my blessing upon you, you are no longer worthy to dwell there. You are only worthy to dwell there in as much as you represent me. And they were no longer representing God. They were being taken up with the style of life of the other people who had formerly been in the land. And there they are spoiled and ruined. And they have to go away into captivity for some 70 years. Jeremiah, the prophet, says that they will be in captivity for 70 years. Long 
70 years. But God had said, through the prophets, you will return. You will come back. And in fact, the book of Ezra, which in the ancient documents follows straight on to Nehemiah, begins by saying, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put it in writing saying that the people should go back and rebuild the house of God. I find that very thrilling and exciting that in this year, 530 BC, Persia, having destroyed Babylon, sweeping in, taking over what seemed to be an invincible international power, Babylon, that had been the great, mighty power was overwhelmed suddenly by Persia and foreign policy completely changed so that the Jews could go back home. And all this, it says in Ezra, in those opening verses, in order to fulfill the word of the prophet Jeremiah, God changes international foreign policy. It's very thrilling for us to see that. Who was Jeremiah? Well, he was just one of the prophets that happened to be in one of those lands that was taken over. Israel was a very insignificant nation compared with other nations they took over. In fact, every time Jeremiah spoke, he wasn't even accepted by his own people. Jeremiah prophesied and they threw him in prison. He spoke again, they threw him in a hole in the ground. And he was saying, this is what God's word says. And they said, oh rubbish, stop talking Jeremiah, we're not interested in you. But God said to Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry, I am watching over my word to perform it. And these 70 years on, the greatest nation in the world at that time has to change its foreign policy. They don't understand why, but God says why. In order that the word of the Lord through Jeremiah might be fulfilled. They changed their foreign policy. Do you believe God's like that over the nations? Wonderful stories coming out of China these days. Hearing of millions of Christians there. God over the nations. We talk about nations being closed. We talk about great communist powers. Will God be able to keep up with the 20th century? Can God cope with these enormous international movements? And God sits in the heavens and laughs. And God changes international policy at his will. He fulfills the word of his prophet. And in these days, when the church has apparently been so significant, there is a prophetic word that is going to overtake us. Hallelujah. The words of the prophets are marching up. They are gathering momentum behind us, beloved. And his word must be fulfilled. And we shall see amazing international manifestations of God. So Ezra had returned under this fulfillment of prophecy some years before. He wasn't in the first wave. It's very interesting to see there was wave after wave of restoration. Zerubbabel and a very small company were the first to go. They had a pioneer spirit about them. They made that long journey back from Babylon to Jerusalem. But they couldn't build on their own. They started to build, then they became discouraged. And God sent along prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, they came along and prophesied. And the work which had slowed down and nearly uh, come to nothing began to come on again as the prophets played their part. 
And then we see Ezra turning up with his profound teaching ministry. And then finally we see this third wave which comes through Nehemiah. I believe we need to see here in this restoration passage something of a prefiguring of God's end time purpose for a full body of ministry. Teachers, prophets, apostles, the whole full ministry will be needed to bring God's restoration purpose thoroughly through. If the teacher could do it alone, then Ezra would have done it alone, but he couldn't. After Ezra's return, still 14 years later, the walls are still not standing. There had to come that further thrust to bring the whole thing to completion. Now, I believe that God was to follow the mighty word that he gave us last night in saying to us, where are those who will rise to the challenge by speaking to us this evening about the way God spoke to this man, Nehemiah. There came a day in the life of Nehemiah which started like any other day, but by the end of that day, he was a completely changed man. The motivation for his life, his expectation of his life and career was completely changed one day. God can do that. God can do that this week at the Downs Bible Week. God could do that tonight. He could come to your life here in July 83 and and you have thought, well, this is my career, this is my path in life and tonight God can come to you and speak to you in such a way that he makes the whole of your career just fade in its significance because something else has absolutely captivated you. And I'm praying that that will happen here tonight for hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. We've got to see God laying hold of hundreds of people who will say from now on, from now on, Zion is my chief delight. From now on, to see that city rebuilt, to see the church of God come out of ruins into glory again, that is the preeminent thing in my life. And it can happen in one day. It can happen in one meeting. I'm praying that will happen to us as we look at this. Now in the American Standard Bible and one or two of the other older Bibles, it starts by saying, now it happened in the month Chislev. Some of the more tr- modern translations, the NIV leaves that out, but it just caught my attention that now it happened. Now it happened. That was the trigger. There has to come a triggering off in our lives that, that suddenly changes our situation. Now it happened in this, on this day. It comes in many ways. We can read again and again of men in this book. You can read in the biographies in the bookstall of lives that change one day. So many different ways. Moses one day was going out with the same sheep to do the same round and suddenly he saw a bush burning. His life was never the same again. Just one day, started like any other day, his life was never, never the same. He never went back from that, a burning bush. David, one day while he was looking after a few sheep and one of his brothers came rushing up, panting and saying, David, Samuel's here. He wants to see you. David left the few sheep to see what this was all about. His life was never the same again. He never, never was able to go back from that wonderful moment when God called him. One day Isaiah was in the house of God 
The great king had died and perhaps he was there wondering what's going to happen now and suddenly he was there in the house of God and suddenly he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had an encounter with God. His life was never the same again. In a moment he was changed. Gideon, frightened little Gideon, hiding away, suddenly an angel of the Lord spoke to him. That was his turning point. Paul, breathing out threatening and slaughter against the church, suddenly a light. We heard from John Barbu the other evening how he, in an idol worship temple in India, suddenly the Lord. Brother, that can happen to you tonight. God suddenly speaking to us, suddenly changing us, breaking in on our lives. No, it may not be in such a dramatic way, though it might. God has spoken to us in prophecy about unexpected things happening here this week. But for Nehemiah, it doesn't seem to have been anywhere near as dramatic as some of the other Bible characters we might refer to. For Nehemiah, in his safe, secure job, this God-fearing man, all that happens to him is he hears some news one day. That's all it is. Someone tells him some news. And that changes his life completely. Just hear about something. As I thought about that, I thought, we're such bad hearers of news in the days in which we live. We can hear amazing news, but we don't, we don't hear it very well. Jesus said this, Take heed how you hear. Take heed how you hear. We have so much information coming to us day after day. If we watch the television news, we have news breaking in on our lives. And we can hear it in such awful ways. We can hear it so passively. We can be so indifferent. We can be preoccupied. And news is coming to us. We can be emotionally moved for a moment. But somehow we're not gripped. I've noticed myself watching the news, how quite recently there was a report about the drought in Ethiopia and it was so very moving seeing these tiny children and their skeleton type frames and their, their skin and I thought, oh, those poor, poor children. This news, it was, it was like a physical thing to watch it. It came out and hit you. And then there was the next piece of news and then there was the next piece of news and then as is so often the case, I wonder if you've noticed it on British television, at the end they sum up and they say, and here are the headlines. And then having done that, they say, and today it was reported that. And you watch for this. It seems to be the little bit of aspirin that we're fed every night to help us to get through some of the staggering news. And at the very end of the news, nearly always, there's something about a dog riding a motorbike or something... Uh, <laughs> And, and you sort of think, oh, how stupid, oh, ho, ho. And go on to the next programme, shall we have the tea now? And we've forgotten this devastating thing that we saw. These terrible, terrible plights that people are in in Ethiopia. For a moment, we were overwhelmed with it. We said, how can that mother cope with that poor child? But by the time we've heard the end of the news, we've had the funny at the end and we've forgotten it. We are hearing news all the time, beloved, but we don't know how to hear it. Take heed how you hear. Because I could say things here tonight and because we are so tuned into this generation, we can be moved for a moment, but we haven't heard enough to change us. But Nehemiah just heard, and that was it. 
that was the end. He said, that's enough of this job. I am devastated by this news. Oh, may God help us to be devastated. We need to be rather like when you hear on the radio, and you, you might hear music playing. You may be driving along in your car and you hear one tune after another and you may even hear an appeal for something, the week's good cause or something and you get moved for a moment. That's one way of listening. You hear Muzak coming over all the time. That's another way of listening. And then suddenly somebody on the radio says, here is a call for Mr. and Mrs. Robinson travelling in Lancashire. Their son is in hospital in London, seriously ill. Boy, you hear that news differently. It's not just flowing in and out. You are gripped. You stop. You cannot drive any further. The news comes out and grabs you. That's what we need to hear like. Jesus said, the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they barely hear. Let me, let me just test you. You test yourself. Let me hear, hear this. Jesus said this. Test yourself. How well you hear it. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire which he has prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. How well did you hear it? Do you find, I can't hear it, I have such difficulty hearing that. Isn't that true? We've become dull of hearing, we find it very difficult to hear. These will go away into eternal punishment. You know what's going on in your heart as you hear that. You're thinking, I find that so hard to hear. Jesus says, take heed how you hear. This people's heart has become dull. Their ears barely hear. And God says from heaven, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He understands about life and death. He understands about eternity. He dwelt in eternity with me through everlasting ages. He knows. He can speak with authority on these matters. Beloved, hear him. This is my dear son. Have we heard the news? Has it gripped us? Has it devastated us? Here another piece of news. Jesus wants a spotless, perfect bride. Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. That's what he wants. That's what he's going to have. It's only when we consider how glorious Zion is meant to be that we become overwhelmed with what it is. It's when we realise that God has said that's how she's to be, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. That's the church. What has he got? Well, he's got the equivalent of what Nehemiah heard about. What did Nehemiah hear? Away in Babylon, he said, now, how is Jerusalem? What news of those who've gone? And the news was they are in great distress and shame and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. 
That's what he heard. He said, how's it going? And they said, it's hopeless. Nothing's happened. The walls are down. Anybody can walk in. The gates aren't up. The whole thing is chaotic. It's rubbish. And Nehemiah was overwhelmed with the news. Now we need to be overwhelmed before we can become useful to God. We need to look at the situation of the church today. We need to look at our society. The walls are down, beloved. What does the wall, what do the walls speak of? Well, walls speak of division. They say, this is acceptable and this is not acceptable. God has been in the matter of division ever since the creation. We're so frightened of hearing that, but God, from the beginning, he separated light and darkness. God has forever since then been in the business of separating and dividing. And it is a great tragedy when the walls come down in church life, when the walls are down in in modern society. Recently we hear of 21 million people in the USA with herpes. 21 million people in the USA with a sickness that can only be caught by immoral sex. 21 million. The walls are down. There are no walls. And now we've discovered a drug that can overcome it. And so what do people say? Well, let's make sure that all young people have it in case they get into trouble. And there'll be a battle as to whether it should be given like we might give a whooping cough injection. The walls are coming down. But not just in society. Because the walls, if you like, have always been down in society. The tragedy is when the walls are coming down in church life. And so we heard in the news this last week of a Methodist minister who gave his blessing to a lesbian marriage. Now that was in the news last week. There was no walls. There's no saying, no, that is not acceptable inside the church of God. That can just walk on in. I don't want to just give you one little scare story that might be just in a very strange situation. But this is what the world thinks of us. Let me read to you what was in the Daily Mail two weeks ago. Saturday, two weeks ago, by a political journalist. Not a spiritual man, not writing the religious column. A political man, he writes regularly in that paper. And he's writing about the church under the heading, You Can't Sell Faith Like Cornflakes. And this is what he says. It's quite a long section, so please listen. Over the last generation, a process of demoralization has set in among the clergy. Watching their flocks diminish, they have tended to hold less strongly to their own convictions. Or rather, they have found secular substitutes for a dogmatic religious faith which is waning. In place of the Christianity of the Ten Commandments, they have put the Christianity of social welfare. They concern themselves with what they imagine are burning topical issues. They hold debates on nuclear weapons. Some of them campaign actively on behalf of pacifist bodies. They preach sermons on unemployment. Sometimes they behave as though they were little more than social workers. Sometimes they try to usurp the functions of government ministers. They're almost invariably well-meaning, progressive-minded, humanitarian, and to use the current cant phrase, K 
caring and compassionate. But there is nothing much to distinguish these high-minded bishops, deans, canons and reverends from any other category of do-gooders. The sacral, charismatic element seems to have gone. They are manifestly not divinely inspired. There is not much faith in their hearts or fire in their bellies, and it shows. It seems to me there is absolutely no future for the church as a social welfare institution. At the same time, the churches have watered down their teaching on almost all aspects of morality. If young people seek guidance on sexual conduct, for instance, they are no longer offered definite rules. They are given polysyllabic fudge and mudge. People turn to God not in order to seek their own materialist, earthly desires, but to escape from them. He's saying what he thinks the church should be like now. To find something which is better and ennobling. Religion is not about this world, it's about the next. Christianity is not a secular crusade for social improvements. It's an alternative to materialism, a rejection of the world and the flesh. It concentrates instead on the eternal and the divine. The notion that it can be democratized and popularized is nonsense. It operates on the frontiers of human understanding and makes heroic demands of its adherents. That indeed is precisely its appeal because it is so totally and constitutionally different from anything else to be found in the world. But of course, to preach this kind of Christianity, the only true kind, requires a passionate faith, very uncharacteristic of modern churchmen. They prefer to operate with the techniques of modern religious sociology and are getting absolutely nowhere. Now, if you read some of his other uh, conclusions, you would realize that he's not writing from the point of view of this platform, but he is able to discern the shambles. He's saying, look, they're just being like anybody else. They're just being do-gooders, compassionate and caring. Where is their distinctive message? They're supposed to be distinctive. They're supposed to be different. And he thinks the whole thing's humbug. And the photograph over it all is communion being celebrated at Centre Court at Wimbledon. And it's all done to impress the world and the world says, nonsense. We are not impressed. And so we might say, well, the lesbian marriage, well, it's just a one-off. But beloved, this is what the world thinks. It's irrelevant. And we need to hear that right down in our hearts. We need to hear that news. The walls are down and the world can see it. The gates aren't there. Anybody can walk in and out and say anything. And that's where the story begins. When, when people, young men and women, older people, people like Nehemiah, hear that news in such a way that it triggers something off in them. They say, enough, we can't stand this any longer. I cannot any longer give myself to lesser things. This is the glory of God. God has said, his city shall be the joy of the whole earth. And the world says, it's humbug. That's got to come to us with such force that we can't stay still any longer. We can't give a little of our time. We can't give a little extra at the edge. We've got to find it the consuming passion of our lives. Because we have seen how the shame of it hits us 
There is disgrace, it says in Nehemiah 1. We are ashamed. So we should let that hit us. We should let that come through to us. So the first thing I'm saying then is the igniting spark, that which sparks it off. That day it happened. Has it happened for you yet? Can you honestly say that concern for Zion is the chief motivation in your life? You may have all kinds of different jobs. You may be a school teacher, you may be a nurse, you may be an insurance salesman, but you can say, truly, above everything else in my heart, the kingdom of God comes first. Everything else is taking second place. And for some of us, it's going to mean that I can no longer be that. I've got to be 100% spending all my time getting this house rebuilt. Some of us have got to hear that call in our hearts. So, the second thing I see, first of all, he hears the news. The second thing is this, is that he cries to God. The cry to God. He wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. We do need to see that he doesn't first act about it. His first response wasn't action. I think if our first response is action, it is simply that we have failed to see the enormity of the problem. If we say, oh, it's awful, the situation, let's start a crusade. Let's put on a special. We have failed to understand the enormity of the problem if we think we can just put on a crusade. I heard serious figures recently in connection with a crusade that 15,000 people had gone through the counselling rooms of a crusade. 15,000 had gone through the counselling room of a major crusade. And then later it was very, very carefully looked at and considered and within one year, one year, in the churches there were 90-90 people added to those churches. From 15,000 to 90 in one year. When we say, let's put on a crusade, we haven't seen the half of the problem. It hasn't hit us, it hasn't overwhelmed us. We haven't sat down and said, this is awful. To think that we can just put on a crusade and, and change things, it's like saying to someone with terminal cancer, have an aspirin. It's no answer. It's a hopeless endeavour. We have got to fall down and say, oh God, this is hopeless. Now we can rejoice that again this year we've grown by another thousand, 5,400 registered at the Downs. Terrific, it's grown each year, another thousand, another thousand. Beloved, if a local football club had only 5,000 on any Saturday, they'd close down. They can't run it. 5,000. We've got to see it in proportion. We've got to see the Some of us now have got the biggest church in town. But what is 100 or 200 in a town of 20,000? What is 500 in an urban area of 300,000? That's what some of us are seeing. Our churches have become the biggest in town. But what is it against the huge crowds who don't know Jesus is alive at all and think the church is a big joke? We've got to let it hit us. It must penetrate to us. When Nehemiah considered the reality, it overwhelmed him. I honestly believe this. Until we've wept over the ruins, we'll never build a wall. Until we've felt the weight of it, 
We'll just get into our good ideas. When we start hitting the problems that are down the road, we'll throw in the towel. We have got to be men and women who have first been overwhelmed by it. Nehemiah was overwhelmed by it. And if we're finding, as some of us are, that people are crowding into our churches and we think, wow, this is terrific now, let's go and visit around one of the housing estates nearby. You go door to door where 5,000 people live in a housing estate near your church and ask them how interested they are in Jesus. It's when the reality of it overwhelms us. That's when we shall start really being used by God because the Bible doesn't say this, that you should have a go. It doesn't say, blessed are the whiz kids that can really get the publicity moving. Blessed are those who know how to use the media. It doesn't say that. It says, blessed are they that mourn. Why? Because they shall be fortified, comforted, better translated, fortified. That's what the word meant when it was first translated into that English word, comfort. Fortify has retained the sense. It's cum fortis, with strength, come alongside with strength. The word fortify has held the sense of the meaning of the word. When we think about comfort, we think about cushions and armchairs. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When the Bible says, I will send the comforter, our whole understanding of the Holy Spirit sometimes has been affected by the way that English word has changed its meaning down through the years. When Wycliffe first used it, it meant fortify, strengthen, provoke, stir up. The English word has changed. And it, it means more there, there kind of thing. And our hymn books often reflect that. Lovely hymns about the Holy Spirit. They're all about there, there. Steady on. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will comfort. No, it's fortify. And I believe that Men like Nehemiah come red-eyed from having really fallen in the dust and saying, oh God, this is a dreadful shame that your church should ever be like this. You might say, well, we are, we're not into this kind of thing. We wouldn't um, go along with these liberals. We're evangelical. So often, yes, coldly evangelical, divisively evangelical, traditionally evangelical, withstanding the Holy Ghost evangelical. We can't stand on our high horses and say, yes, well, we're true to the Bible, because so often many that are very true to the Bible are saying no to the Holy Ghost. And we've got to say, oh God, it's a shame the place is in ruins. And when we really come down to it, then God can begin to fortify us. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be fortified. This man, Nehemiah, is first of all overwhelmed by the reality. It sweeps over him. He thinks the house of God's in ruins, the city of God's in ruins. And we need to see the enormity of the problem so that God can begin to fortify us. And what happens next? Well, he turns to God. God's our only answer. Not trying to put something on. Not trying to manipulate the media. We need God. And we find this man begins to pray one of the most memorable prayers in the Bible. 
a wonderful prayer as this man has much to teach us about prayer. Let's just see how he prays. First of all, he cries out to God, O God of heaven. God of heaven. Isn't that great to know when we see things so tiny and small in this world, the church, even in restoration, so small still, that the God with whom we have to do is the God of heaven. The God of the heavens. The eternal God. The glorious God. Everything's in his hands. He rides on the heavens to our help. He is the great and marvellous God. And it's when we see the enormity of the problem, we are cast on him. Absolutely cast on him. Not to bless our ideas, but to take over. He's our only hope. The God of the heavens. The mighty, mighty God. We need heaven's power. We need heaven's resources. We need heaven's conviction. When God moves in convicting power and revival, when we read about the sort of things that J.O. Fraser experienced out there in Lusu land, and certainly I found that book so thrilling, as he got before God and cried to God, God suddenly swept in and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families and areas were swept into the kingdom because this man was wholly dependent on God. God of the heavens. And then the great and terrible God. If you notice that, the great and awesome God. He's not fooled by the fact that the nation is in need and the city is down. He doesn't say, well, God can't keep up. No, he says, you're still the great and terrible God. I believe with all my heart that we need a rediscovery of the very character of God that we should know that he's great and terrible. So much bigger than our projected views of him. That's why it's so edifying to sing not just sentimental hymns, but Bible scriptures set to music. When we are singing great truths that come right out from the pages of the scripture, we are helped to get a more accurate view of him. The great and terrible God. When Zechariah first prophesied, for instance, we often forget this. Zechariah prophesied. We think of him as being a prophet of encouragement, and surely he was. But the very first word that Zechariah prophesied is the word angry. It says in Zechariah chapter 1, after the introduction of the man, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's the first thing he says. And in the Hebrew, the first prophetic word that Zechariah prophesied was angry. That's why you went into captivity. That's why, having been in the good land, the land of milk and honey, that's why you went into Babylon, because God was actually angry. We tend to forget that God gets angry. We've got such a, a plastic view. He was angry, and he let them go into captivity. And when they come back as a restoration people, and they are failing to build... Zechariah has to say to them, look, listen, God was angry with your fathers. Now, don't think just because you've come back and now there's something of the blessing of God, you can drop the standards. No, God is still saying, I want wholehearted commitment to my purposes. Because I am angry with sin, he says. He's the great and terrible God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The great and terrible God. And yet, 
this other wonderful truth that's underlined in the prayer. Who keeps, verse 5, covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Although he's angry, although he's great, terrible, he's a God of covenant love with his people. He has made a covenant with his chosen. He has determined a future. And now, Nehemiah, the man of God, begins to press on in. He says, Father, I know you're great. I know you're awesome. I know you're terrible. But Lord, they're your people. You've made a covenant. Lord, this is where we can come in strongly, beloved. We can begin to say, God, you've made a covenant with us in your dear Son. And though we may be so small at the moment, Lord, you are for us. You are with us. We can begin to argue our case. We must understand this, that prayer is arguing the case. You look at some of the greatest prayers of the Bible. They are arguing the case. They're saying, Lord, if this is so, what about this? You see it with Abraham. Abraham says, Lord, if there are this many righteous, will you save the city? And, and well, Lord, if there's this many, and he's arguing, he's gaining a bit more ground. Look at Moses. He says, Lord, if I've found favour... If I found grace, show me your glory. I'm arguing from one thing to the next thing. Do you argue with God like that? Arguing your case before God. We need to be doing that. We need to be saying, Lord, you have promised. So that we use the promises as our way in to receive mighty, mighty answers. Covenant keeping God. Arguing. He said, Lord, remember your word. Remember your word. Verse 8. The word which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember, Lord, that's what you said. That's the way we must pray. Lord, you said it. Not our idea. That's how Elijah prayed. That the rain would stop. That wasn't just Elijah's idea. He didn't think, what shall I pray to impress the people? I know what I'll pray. I'll pray the rain will stop. He didn't suddenly have a brainwave. He knew Deuteronomy. And where it says in Deuteronomy that if you go after false gods, I will shut the heavens, I will stop the rain. God promised that. And so Elijah knew how to argue the promises with God. Say, oh God, you promised. And Nehemiah is not just going to try something, he's cast on God, he's saying, God, you promised. I'm pleading the case before you. He also identifies with the sin of the nation. He says, oh, we have sinned. We need to be aware of that. We need to identify. We need to say, oh God, we're part of this church. We're part of this people that is a laughing stock, really. We're part of it. We like to stand back from it. We like to say, well, we're not like that part of it. But we are part of the whole. There needs to be an identification. And saying to God, oh God, that's how it is. But we bring our case before you. We argue it strongly before you. God is looking for true intercessors. People who will get through before him in this kind of praying. Because we're so overwhelmed with the situation. And then he says, Lord, you said, your word says that if we turn against you, you will scatter us. But if we turn to you, you will gather us again to the place that you have chosen to cause your name to dwell. It's interesting that scattering is a judgment in God's purpose. Gathering is part of his blessing. 
God is gathering a people in these days. Are you being gathered? Have you been gathered, as it says here, to a place where he's causing his name to dwell? Do you sense that? Is that true of you, that you have been gathered to a place where evidently his name is being caused to dwell? A number of churches are growing, and some people say, well, they're only, they're only growing because people are, are changing from one church to another. That is largely true in some places, although there are folk being converted, but a lot of churches are growing through people moving from one place to another. But God has said here that part of his blessing is that he will gather people to where he's causing his name to dwell. I don't think we should despise that. I used to despise that. I used to say, oh God, this isn't real growth. This isn't the enlarging of your kingdom. This is just Christians moving address. And then I saw this. God said, I will gather you. He is gathering committed armies to places where he's causing his name to dwell. Are you in such a place? He's causing his name to dwell with power. It's part of restoration, a gathering, a gathering so that he could manifest his name and his glory. And I don't think we should be frightened of that anymore. I'm not frightened of that anymore. God does it. God scatters them and then God gathers them. And then he uses this last argument. He says they are your people. I underlined in my Bible all the places where it says thy, thy, thy. In verse 10, they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. He throws the whole onus back onto God. He says, Lord, it's your people. It's an awful mess, but they're yours, Lord. Again, Moses used the same method. He said, Lord, they're your people. What will the heathen say? Jesus did the same thing in John 17. He says, thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. Now, Lord, I'm committing them to you. They're yours, Lord. Please work. Your name is attached to them. We can bring that argument to God. We say, oh God, they're your beloved people. It's your church. It's your great name. Even the world doesn't understand that a church which hasn't got born-again people is not his church. The world doesn't understand that. We need to say, oh God, your name is being brought down. Now, Lord, it's yours, your people. Argue the case before God. Do you prevail with God like that? God is looking for people like that. We've had it so easy. We're so casual. God is looking for people who will get before and say, Lord, your church, your great name. Blessed are they that mourn. They shall be fortified. God will take hold of them. This man, in the opening chapter, he falls to the ground, really. He is smitten. But boy, does he get up. From this day on, there's no looking back with this man. Have you noticed? The first chapter, when he's alone with God, he's a man who's down and weeping and fasting and crying. After this chapter, he never looks back. doesn't matter what he hits, nothing's going to stop him. Nothing. Talk about a fortified man. He's marvellous. I've been living with this man for a few weeks. I've never done much study in the book of Nehemiah before, but this man has come out of the pages. He's marvellous. Why? Because God fortified him. God strengthened him. God came into him at that 
place where he was overwhelmed. Can I say to pastors here tonight, if you're overwhelmed, blessed are they that mourn. This is how Jesus burst on the scene with his manifesto. His opening line, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor, who feel their poverty. You're really blessed. Why? Because you won't depend on other things. You won't depend on your skill, your ability. You are truly blessed, Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're one step ahead. If you're poor in spirit, you are nearer getting through. Blessed are they that mourn. Say, oh, thank you, Lord, it's tough. Thank you, Lord, it's overwhelming, because you can fortify me. You can pick me up and bring me into another dimension. Blessed are those that mourn. They shall be fortified. So we've seen, first of all, the triggering off. He heard the news, and it really hit him. The second thing we've seen is how he cried to God. He cast it all back on God. And the third thing is the personal commitment. The personal commitment. He's been before God, he's crying to God, and then he just adds at the end of that chapter, chapter 1, it's just tucked in at the end, now, I was cupbearer to the king, by the way, in case you wondered. But it doesn't seem to matter anymore. It really didn't matter anymore. It was insignificant now. We might have said it was a very significant thing. Cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah just says, well, I was cupbearer to the king. How he could have introduced himself so differently from the opening verse. He could have introduced himself. Now, the words of Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. No, he's not Nehemiah, the man overwhelmed with the situation. And by the way, I'm cupbearer to the king. Please send me to Judah, he says. Please let me go. So after a period of prayer, a period of crying to God, days of being before God, and now God has fortified him. God has picked him up. We don't know about the secret dealings of God. We don't see Nehemiah's call, as we would term it. But obviously during those weeks with God, those days of prayer, God began to deal with him in a way that's not recorded here. But now he knows something very wonderful and profound. He says, please send me to Judah. Please send me to the city of my father's tombs. That phrase really, really caught me. The city of my father's tombs. I want to go back to that city where, where my fathers were. That sense of history. It was the honour of his family. Lord, the name of my family. You might say, well, that, that doesn't apply to me. I'm the only one in my family converted. I, I don't have any Christian brothers and sisters. No, you're thinking about the wrong family. Once you're born again, you belong to another family altogether. And Zion is the city of your family and your father's tombs. Amazing tombs in Zion. Amazing great men and women down through the ages. You've joined a wonderful family. Wesley was in it. Whitfield was in it. Tremendous family. What they saw in their day. Say, oh God, my father's tombs. Those, those men, what they saw. 
It's the same city, Lord. What Whitfield saw, what Wesley saw. Lord, I'm part of that family now. I've been reading recently about some of the great reformers. Tyndale. These men who, who translated the scriptures and spent their lives. They're our fathers. They're tombs there. They gave their lives. Reading again, I hadn't read it for many years, J.C. Ryle's book, Five Great Reformers. And reading there how Bishop Hooper, in the flames when he was laying down his life as one of the reforming men, prevailing for the truth at that time, and he's put on the fire, and the, and the, and the fire set light to, to destroy him. And three times they had to light the fire. The first time it just burned up and burned his arm, and then it went out and they had to light again. And then the wind changed direction. We think, oh God, why doesn't the wind blow hard and quickly? Why didn't God come down on and save his son from the cross? There are huge questions. But this man stood there at the stake saying wonderful, glorious things about his Savior as they three times had to set fire to that wood round about him before his life was taken. Brother, these are the ones that are in our family. These are the ones who've gone before us in order to give us the scriptures, in order to see the church come to fullness. Tyndale hounded round Europe to try and just get the Bible to us. Laying down his life. People dying at the stake. These are our fathers. We're in that family, beloved. And we've got to say, let me see the city of my father's tombs again. I want to see a city that's worthy of their sacrifice. I want to see a church that speaks of the glory of these men who laid down their lives. And this, is, this man's gripped. He's, he's so gripped. I, I love it. He says, let me go to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, and listen to this, that I may rebuild it. That I may rebuild it. Imagine. He's so taken over by it, he says, I'm going to build it. There's almost a sense, well, if no one else comes, I'm going to do it. Again, how foreign to our modern thinking. Our modern thinking is, someone ought to do something about it, you know. We'll draw up a committee. The men who've got things done have never even thought like that. Let the whole thing be ever so impossible, they say, I'm going to build it. These are the men and women who change whole situations. These are the men and women who actually find that when they start building, there's a whole army with them. But there have got to be people who are not saying someone ought to do something. There are people overwhelmed with the enormity of it who come before God and find God speaks right into them and says, yes, and I'm going to send you and you're going to see it happen. So he says, right, let me go. Let's get at it. You got that in your heart? Oh, God, let's see your church stand up. Don't you long for the day when it's not just truly hidden away here on a race course, but in every town and every place there's this testimony of hundreds of worshipping, praising, fully orchestrated people. Hallelujah. When we were down at the Bogner Young People's, uh, whatever we called it, getaway, new generation, it was wonderful last summer as we were praising and worshipping and the people who worked there said they were just amazed 
to see all these young people so excited with God. And the staff there said, it's a pity the church isn't like this. <laughs> That's true. That is what the world said. The world has got no time for our nonsense religion. They've got no time for our arguing about whether the chairs should be this way and is it right to raise hands in meetings. They think, what are they going on about? They don't mind us going into the, their holiday camp and making noise. They're used to people making noise. We've got this strange concept. We're so uptight about little things. We've always done it this way. And the boys' brigade flag must go there. <laughs> And we think we're going to take the world up. We're evangelical. We wouldn't have a lesbian marriage in our place. But we must have the boys' brigade flag over there. God. And the world says, oh, they're mad. They're mad. We laugh, but it's so true. Churches that would say they honour this book, uptight, withstanding, quite happy to tell lies about the move of the Spirit, so, quite happy to pull away things. God. And we need to say, oh God, break through. Break through. Because the world, when it sees reality, they're amazed. They say, what is this? What a pity the church isn't like this. Pressing in to see it. Amazed by it. Looking forward to us coming. Will you come again next year? Yes, we'll come next year. We'll come two weeks next year. Will you? They're amazed. Oh, we're going to see it happen, beloved. It's going to be tough, as we shall see chapter by chapter. Boy, is it tough. Many of us know that as we sit here. We know the agonies. We know the hornet's nest we stir up when all that Nehemiah had in his heart was this, that he had the welfare of the people of God at his heart. Oh, he stirred up such a hornet's nest when he had the welfare of the people of God in his heart. But we have to be overwhelmed with that passion that our fathers had before us. It's no good saying, well, we don't do it like here, that here. They didn't do it like that there in Hooper's day when they burned him at the stake. When Tyndale was haunted, they didn't do it like that. That's why they killed them. And we are saying, well, because we don't do it like that, so we better not do it. Beloved, where's the spirit of the reformers? Where are the people who say, well, burn me then, we're going to do it like this. We've got to get that kind of passion. The biographies you'll find in the bookstore are about men and women like that. It may be impossible, but Nehemiah says, I'm going to rebuild it. Not deploring the situation. Not saying somebody ought to do something. Let's draw up a committee. You read the story of C.T. Studd. I was just fingering through it in the bookshop again today. That man went through three nations. China, India, Africa. What a man! He said, if, God, if Christ be God's son and he died for me, there is no sacrifice too great for me. That was it. He went. He, China, India, Africa, what a man. You look at William Booth. 
swept through this nation, wrote a book called In Darkest England. He was provoked by it. Are you provoked by it? Where is that pioneer spirit, beloved? Have we got that pioneer spirit? Are we just working in a cosy little house group? We've got to find those of pioneer spirit. Those who say, well, I'm sorry, but this is the overwhelming thing. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I must see the house of God come forth again. I must see it. Men and women. I hear some said last night, what about the women? So stirred through Alan's message. What about the women? Well, beloved women, show us where you fit in. Show us where Phoebe was. Show us by your godliness and your gifting. Instruct us by being exemplary in character and gift. And let us see it, men and women, coming forth into their fullness. Gladys Aylward was made like this. Missionary society said no. She said, right, I'll go then. Isn't that right? A friend of mine called Alan Vincent, when he was only weighing about nine stone because of this terrible flow of blood he told us about, and no missionary society would take him. And there he and Eileen, when no missionary society would take them, said, well, we're going anyway then. I'm well, and they went right out there to India. First time I went out with them, just heard from Eileen some of the things they went through with the young children and all the rest of it. Beloved, we've got to have that. And for some of us, it may not be to go out to India, though it might. It might be that you move on to that housing estate. Will you do that for the kingdom? It might be we've got to plant a new things around some of these new housing estates around. You say, well, God's never called me to India. Has he called you, perhaps, to see the wall rebuilt in that housing estate? To see a testimony there? You say, well, I've got my career. This man's career just was secondary from now on. He was overwhelmed. I used to be cupbearer to the king, but now this is it. I must rebuild the house of God. Some will leave their homes for the sake of this. Some will build opposite their homes. As we read the story on, evening by evening, we'll see that some just built opposite their home. They had their career, they had their job, but they were faithfully building the wall opposite. Some, they just had to move, like Nehemiah. He said, I can't stay here anymore, I've got to go. I want to ask you as we draw to a close this evening, what's the uppermost commitment in your life? What is your chief commitment? Is it to your career? Is it to that little niche that you thought, well, by then I should have got that promotion and that promotion, then we should be there, we could have moved house, we'll be in that nice cosy thing. Yeah, we could even have a house group, that would be nice. Or is it, oh God, your kingdom comes first. I have seen enough that that must, must come first. One of the things that stirred me out of secular work, one of the things, God speaking to me in different ways, one day a Jehovah's Witness knocked my door. Young man, my own age group, and I was travelling to London every day of the week from 7am to 7pm, and he knocked my door one day and I said, by the way, how do you live? I talked to him about the Bible and I said, well, how do you live? He said, well, I clean windows in the morning 
And I do this in the afternoon. And I thought, for that nonsense message, you clean windows, and I'm spending 12 hours a day just to get up to London to the office and back down again, and I got the gospel of the kingdom. That's one of the things that sent me upstairs to my knees. I said, oh God, this young man's throwing down his life for that message. God began to get at me, stir me, and say, oh, yes, where are your priorities, Terry? I'm after your life. God is after some lives here tonight. He's after some men and women who thought that they've got a career and know you're going to be among those that we heard about last night. Captains of fifties, of hundreds, of thousands. God will have such a people. We have got to see remarkable, remarkable multiplication. It's got to come, and it's going to come from the likes of you and me saying, Lord, now my priority is the kingdom. I put down my work. I'm willing to leave work to get into this. I'm willing to be a missionary to a housing estate. I'm willing to get together under the leadership of the elders and see where we're going to plant out the next thing. I am willing to lay my life down like that clearly because I see it's not enough just cozying along. We've got to start moving out to rebuild the house of God. But it may be we've got to move right from one town to another like Nehemiah did for the kingdom's sake. God's going to do it. God's going to build a glorious, wonderful church. A restored church. Great congregations like this in town after town. As we shall gather together, perhaps several congregations in a town, we shall come together perhaps monthly with this sort of gathering. And towns will hear about it. It will be in local press week after week. What is happening here? But to get there, we need people to say, right, kingdom first. Not just five minutes here and ten minutes there, but kingdom first. That's what happened to Nehemiah. He was knocked out. He mourned, and then he was fortified, said, right, let's go. I pray that will happen to you tonight. Let's pray.